Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. Uh, We're starting a brand new season um, with this recording and we're going to be talking about tokenization. Uh, We're almost 90 episodes into the podcast and it actually surprises me that we haven't really spoken that much about tokenization. Um, We have have touched on NFTs in a previous episode, Um, but on the podcast today we have the guys from Swarm. I have Philip Piper and Timo Lihis, who are from the Swarm tokenization platform, and they're going to be talking a little bit more about the uh, whole tokenization phenomenon. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us, Stuart. So just to start off with, um, would one of you give me um, just a quick summary of Swarm so people know what it is you guys do? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So with Swarm, we, we, we've been in the market of actually building, let's say, you know, technology for tokenization since 2017. Um, you know, what we're running today, Swarm Markets, is effectively a organization that is trying to be a hybrid between a traditional financial organization, so licensed, a sort of banking institution. And then secondly, just encompass all the like the qualities of, of decentralized finance uh, into it. And the benefit of that is that we can obviously then bridge, you know, traditional financial products into a blockchain world. We can actually sort of use blockchain technology to service traditional financial players with, you know, some added benefits that blockchain brings. Um, so it's effectively sort of, you know, not nothing related to sort of really crypto, but it's actually sort of bringing this new world of, of blockchain based infrastructure into the financial markets. So it's important really to differentiate it from from crypto, in effect. It, it always is, because I think that uh, sort of blockchain always has this uh, this 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 one reputation of actually sort of being always crypto related. But in fact, like, you know, it, it's been a playground to build technology, battle-proven technology to actually that has the, the potential to impact significantly, innovate, you know, the financial markets. And that's what we're trying to do. And so for people who are completely unfamiliar with tokenization, and I'm talking here about investors and traders who might not have come across it, can you give us a, um, a little bit more of um, an introduction to tokenization and why it should be important for investors going forward? Yeah, so at its core, it's really about uh, digitizing um, uh, liquid assets or illiquid assets that are difficult to access for any kind of investor. So, so typically, if you look at a lot of the like non-public securities that are out there, um, it's very hard for people to acquire those assets and, and you know see them as like normal investment products. So the tokenization basically brings those assets into a uh, more accessible format uh, through digitization, and by the basic assets being tokenized, they become available to be acquired via basically a blockchain process. That and that's that's basically what we do. So we make it possible to purchase the assets in the first place, but then also, more importantly, to also trade in and out of different types of capital assets and create portfolios around that. So are we, for example, talking here about private assets that otherwise people would need millions of dollars to get? get access to stuff that's not readily available on public exchanges that's right so for example if you look at certain types of secondary transaction in transactions in tech companies uh, that's one example where you need where you basically need to show up with millions of dollars to get access to those types of investments or if you take like the 
minimum ticket sizes for certain types of private equity funds or hedge funds, then that's typically also normally in, in the millions or certainly from half a million and, and above. So uh, by and large, those assets are unavailable to like a general population. And therefore, the, the tokenization and digitization of those assets is makes it you know more accessible as an asset class. And you know that that's part of the kind of the accessibility aspect of this. And the other aspect is that, you know, it provides once things are digitized, then you can start combining them in various shapes and forms into portfolios and implement different strategies. Um, uh, but, but that's only possible once you have them on chain and you can start kind of using, uh, for example, DeFi infrastructure to create those, you know, the composable products that we're, that we're basically we're helping to create. And um, not long ago, during the pandemic, during lockdown, there was a lot of talk about tokenization, and it was a very hot market, dare I say. Um, it has gone a lot quieter since then. Um, can you explain why? And, and it has, has, has that led to a quieter market overall, or is there a lot more going on behind the scenes? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting comment and observation because, like, you know, we, we lived through that very same cycle where it was uh, basically the, the idea is not new at all. Like we said, we are in this market since 2017, pretty much. Um, but the pedigree and the components that were necessary to do tokenization and, uh, you know, it required a lot of things to actually fall in place or, or you know, to us uh, create those things. So it was either technology that needed to be battle proven. It was actually sort of the institutions and customers knowing and, and more broadly actually appreciating what the benefits of tokenization are. But more importantly, the confidence in this technology had to be sort of elevated. And part of that is obviously sort of the, the regulatory purview um, and people being okay to actually do this on the infrastructure and knowing that that's a regulatory accepted uh, thing to do. Um, and, you know, that took a long time. That took a, a bunch of cycles that we had to fight through with regulatory conversations to know, you know, what is it exactly when you trade against a blockchain-based smart contract? You know, what does that mean? How does it compare against a traditional trading infrastructure? How does the regulator view this? Does it change the nature of the product? Like very, very core and essential questions that are not, you, you can't just work through that within a month or so. You actually have to also let the regulators and legislators actually build regulatory frameworks around it and come to a conclusion that it's okay and here's the rules by which this all has to happen. So here we are where technology obviously has advanced, but more importantly, actually sort of the confidence and the regulatory clarity has advanced. Would you say, I mean, would you say that the regulators are there now or is there still a lot more work to be done in, in engagement? It's very hard to say the regulators because obviously that change that is different uh, across the, the entire globe. Um, we specifically we had started in the United States and we saw pretty much that you know United States was not going to have a very favorable innovative you know stance to this. Um, we are now sort of you know we've we've moved into Europe because of actually much better grounds there. Then suddenly Germany in 2020 came around to actually build a very uh, very progressive stance on sort of tokenization in general, not just crypto but tokenization um, and how it embeds itself into sort of the financial landscape. Um, that has led pretty much to sort of even the more advanced sort of Mika regulations, sort of a crypto related regulations in Europe. Um, so I think we feel very much at home in Europe right now. And, and also in comparison to the UK, you know, where still some of this work has to advance and the FCA still has to, has to sort of come out with stipulations and guidances of this. But, you know, I, I mean, for sure, because 
you know, Europe and specifically Germany is such a credible jurisdiction, it is it is no longer like a side topic. It's no longer something that is run by, you know, a small country and the regulation there, but it's actually done by a credible financial market. And suddenly it opens up a, a very different potential. And um, Timo was talking about these um, much more illiquid assets, much more expensive to access assets. But um, you can also tokenize shares and bonds as well. Um, why do that? Because those are already um, listed on liquid markets. Yes. So, well, I mean, specifically, like previously, there was not much crossover between the crypto market and the traditional financial markets. So they were basically, you know, operating in parallel, if you will. And with, you know, very few exceptions, like typically, if you look at what happened with stable coins in the crypto market, then, you know, stable coins were kind of the bridge between the traditional financial world and uh, and the crypto market. And then, you know, at some point, there were a few projects on the stablecoin side that basically said that, hey, actually, you know, if we use crypto as collateral for issuing stablecoins, it's not a really an ideal solution. It would be much better to use other types of assets that are less correlated to the crypto market. And so hence, you know, they started looking at like things like treasury bond ETFs and and like more uh, stable and uh, non-correlated assets to the crypto markets. And, and that's that's really what drove that whole trend of using traditional financial products and bridging them to the blockchain world and to also in, in the extension of that to the crypto markets. And, and so that's really what's happened. And that's the initial very tangible use case. And then also the other aspect is that from a user point of view, um, a lot of users are not like, you know, if they're crypto users, they don't necessarily want to sign up for an eToro account or something like that. They would rather stay in the crypto realm and, and just kind of keep trading and buying products through that channel and those applications. And then so, you know, when those products came along, I mean, then you basically can start trading stocks and bonds um, alongside with crypto and create portfolios, you know, that basically blend the two worlds. And that's new. And it's, it's, it's quite desirable for certain, you know, I would say, early adopter type um, audiences right now. But, you know, we think that that behavior is going mainstream. So that's why that would make sense, because sooner or later, this, these two worlds need to be integrated anyway, because blockchain is a horizontal technology. So it's inevitable. And, and let me just add, I think that, you know, it's worthwhile to mention that there's a whole um, group of consumers um, that actually is probably never going to open up a brokerage account. And these consumers have at some point decided that this is the world that they want to sort of transact in. It's, it's what they actually built their financial knowledge on. So we see a bunch of customers and partners that we work with that actually say, you know, we, we need to reach those customers where they are. We need to actually be in that place where they make those decisions. So, you know, in that case, we can take normal financial products and actually offer that up as a alternative to what the crypto assets are in that environment, right? And still do it on a regulatory purview. But then the next step is even, um, you know, if you then suddenly have that technology, which Timo called composability, you know, you can suddenly actually build, you know, innovative technologies for financial products that previously couldn't exist. So if you, for example, imagine that, you know, if you have like a, a normal set of stocks and bonds, you know, available, well, then suddenly a smart contract can actually build a usage fund. And that smart contract is an automatic smart contract. You don't need a administrator with a company to actually manage that. You have technology that manages that, right? Or if you actually do bundling of unique, unique assets, you can suddenly build a portfolio of different real estate, which still have a full ownership within, within that construct, 
but it suddenly can be like assembled and deassembled very much, you know, much more flexibly using technology than in comparison to the financial markets. So do you think we're now at a stage where you're going to have some people who are going to be happy just staying with their traditional securities? There's going to be some people who are going to have their portfolio shares, bonds, funds, investment trusts, and also some exposure with tokens, for example, to these illiquid assets that Timo was referring to. But then you've got a real real new generation of investors here, maybe who grew up with crypto, more familiar with the tokenization technology, who actually want to do the whole thing using tokens and don't want to go near what I would call a bread and butter brokerage account. So allow me, Tino, I'm going to quote a customer conversation that we had like two weeks ago uh, of a very large institutional trading organization. And one of the guys was actually comes from a traditional space, right? But one of the guys was actually saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to compare this to media and TV. And, you know, 40 years ago, we had three channels of linear TV. Suddenly there was a private market. It opened up to, I don't know, 20 different channels. Uh, today, it's my choice where to consume it, how to consume it, on what device to consume it, how long I want to consume it. And that flexibility is never going to go back into a box, right? There's still a, a group of consumers that consume the linear TV, but actually the dominant you know, consumer groups are actually not, right? So I think that comparison applies here where suddenly the opening up of that flexibility opens up a, a, a very different way how to look at you know, trading and you know, how to sort of take it outside of the realms of like big institutions and make that more consumer friendly. So I wouldn't even classify as these are the crypto geeks that are going to like continue to grow and therefore be like its own consumer group and the other group is going to stay the same, but it's probably going to have a lot of gray zones between those two consumer groups and it's going to over time gravitate more towards what is more flexible or in, and sort of more efficient and just like better to consume. And that those are the winning factors. It's actually, it doesn't matter whether it's blockchain underneath or not. It's actually that the, the criteria that are material that, that they actually convince. Yeah, I, I would say it's the it's the digitization that makes that happen. Now, we've seen that across a number of different uh, industries. That once digitization happens in an industry, you know, eventually the solutions become very user centric because that's the only way to compete in the end. And and it's the same thing is going to happen here. It's like you know, people will buy the financial instruments or cash flows or you know royalties from their favorite music artists wherever they think that makes the most sense and where it's being presented in the, in the most accessible way, not through necessarily through, you know, some complicated, you know, financial institution structure, but rather, you know, something that's like very accessible. So I think, you know, but it, it, it takes a lot of layers to make that happen. And so we're obviously working on the plumbing and on the infrastructure side right now, but we're already seeing like our clients actually solving those problems and, and basically building like the more user-centric aspect of this. And, and we're more like, you know, on the plumbing side of that, you know, providing the regulated infrastructure to make it happen. And I guess the $64,000 question, is this going to replace traditional stock markets? I mean, are you going to get to a point where a company's just going to go, heck, I'm just going to launch a token. Um, it's going to cost me a fraction of the amount of money, and I'm still going to get access to, you know, a huge universe of uh, potential investors. Well, of course, we're, we're so, somewhat biased because we're putting like, you know, a lot of effort in that direction and, and are convinced that that's actually going to happen. Whether it's going to take like 
you know, short amount of time or medium amount of time and what that time frame is going to look like. That's the big question, right? Um, but we've seen actually in the past in different technology areas that actually once the, the, like the material facts and the components are in place, the adoption curves can be pretty quick. Um, now, the financial industry has not been really innovated like, like you know, in the, in the last 30 years since actually the first electronic trades were done. Um, so it might take some time that some of these organizations are going to sort of, you know, migrate and what, what their role is going to be in that equation. That's a big, you know, exciting question to ask. Um, but I think the consumer is ready. Like the consumer is, is probably going to be the one that is the most deciding factor here of adoption. And it's not necessarily going to be dominated by the, the incumbents that are going to dictate that is going to be this way or that way. And speaking of the consumer, um, Obviously, this is new technology. It's kind of um, you know a new frontier in investing. What do you think are, are the big risks that investors who are keen to get involved in tokenized assets should be aware of? Well, I well, I mean, well, first of all, let's just talk about regulation. I mean, let's. I mean, the, the biggest risk right now is that it's, there's a lot of gray zones depending on which jurisdiction you're issuing tokenized assets from, and then subsequently what you can do with those assets. Um, and, and like who can who can do what, right? So uh, we're getting a lot of um, inbound requests because like if you're in a credible jurisdiction and, and you have like a clear regulatory environment, then that provides a lot of safety for companies to do something in the NFT space or in the tokenization space. And, uh, and that's necessary because otherwise, you know, you go on a, on a limb and uh, potentially, you know, you risk your brand, you risk your the safety of your user base and things like that. And it's just unacceptable, right? So I think that that's at least one of the biggest risks that I see. Yeah, and, and we as an industry have not been doing as good of a job in actually making things you know, easier, right? So there's been a lot of complexities technology and product-wise that have been introduced, which leads the normal consumer to be easily overburdened with what they actually have to have to do to successfully sort of do trades in the, in the space. Um, Maybe that's also a result of actually sort of unclarity in the regulatory space. So with regulatory clarity, organizations can be centralized gatekeepers here. They can actually do a better job and actually sort of simplifying things, taking sort of the complexity out of it. And, you know, we've, we've seen that happening with your email, right? You don't know what the protocol is that you're using email on, but everyone can use an iPhone, right? And I, I think that that is the next chapter of actually this technology area where, we see all major banks are not just tinkering, they're actually deploying, you know, efforts into actually understanding the technology, building a stance of how they want to interact with it right now. Um, whether that's going to be successful or not, you know, we don't know. But, you know, it's clear that everyone sort of knows that if things go wrong, then it can be the Kodak moment for some of these organizations. And, you know, I think that, you know, you know, we're doing a better job as an industry to actually bring out technologies and, and user experiences that are catering towards, you know, a simplest, simplistic and easier to understand, you know, engagement model. Talking about that, um, who, who is actually active in the market from the um, buy side? I mean, who's buying and selling tokens? Is it very, is it a very retail market or are you seeing uh, larger players trading them as well? No, it's it's both. I mean, I think um, I don't know exactly the numbers right now in terms of like how many people that hold crypto in a particular jurisdiction, but it's actually a higher number than you would have guessed. And I think in the US, it's actually reasonably high. And I think in Germany, it's, it's also one of the leading countries in, in Europe on that metric. Um, so I think on the on the consumer side, it's actually like, you know, pretty, 
reasonably well understood in terms of people just kind of finding it interesting and you know buying some of the some of the crypto assets predominantly i would say and then on the on the more institutional side well i mean we have a whole like hedge fund industry around crypto and then um, venture capital has also kind of moved into a model where they're doing both equity investments as well as token investments combined so they kind of saw that as a necessity if they wanted to be in the blockchain space because that's how most of those projects were being funded so i think in terms of like pretty like early adopter retail certainly uh, hold like bitcoin and other types of cryptos and then on the institutional side certainly venture capital has moved into the blockchain space in a big way and formed formed either like expanded their existing mandates to accommodate for crypto as well um or they've just like set up separate vehicles to go after this opportunity um you know more isolated in an isolated fashion um and then yeah so beyond that also we see all the all the major exchanges are setting up uh, like digitization arms um you know to basically go after the well just to be like you know ahead of the curve in terms of if this industry just kind of takes off and they don't want to be sidelined completely because you know they they kind of stuck with tradfi like like philip said they would have like a serious kodak moment in in that case so we're seeing a lot of digitized like blockchain initiatives and digital exchanges and defi infrastructure projects uh that are coming out of or are connected to uh, very large stock exchanges and part of what you can interpret looking at it from the outside is that you know you probably have seen the news about different large banking organizations actually going for crypto custody licenses first right and the background for that is obviously they're going to be trying to sort of blend the the interfaces of actually holding crypto on behalf of a customer very much like a depository bank account they're going to try to blend it to their product landscape and make it simple for their customers to just have that as an alternative on their centralized offering you know and interact with the outside world of crypto or tokens of, of whatever kind so that that already is a visible trend that has been going on for 12 plus months um where none of these organizations can actually forego on that opportunity at least well you mentioned regulation and the gray zone which geographies which countries are the most savvy when it comes to both the the investors themselves and also just generally the regulatory infrastructure the institutions i mean who who's really leading on this on this area yeah it's okay so there's a couple of like different ways how that question could be interpreted so you know what does the user base look like and how sophisticated are they like what what is the penetration of crypto in the users hands and who's buying what right and i i think probably that's pretty much across the board it's it's the north north america you know europe and and asia equally sort of you know from a consumer perspective um you have to then however sort of put, blend in the question of regulation so for example america has been you know hesitant to go down and actually give stipulations to the industry saying okay what exactly are we expecting you to do and has been sort of you know in a in a more you know um a more sanctioning kind of mode and and changing the stance quite significantly over time um so it's going to be a battle between the consumer that is actually sort of in the market to do certain things and then the regulator that wants to dictate the way how it should look like um and then obviously sort of the existing financial industry is playing its role asia is in a in a very similar spot like uh you know obviously china has been sort of you know suppressing you know the access to crypto india the same way you know um you know japan used to be sort of on a path to converge there 
then when sort of more conservative has come back with more innovation, Singapore is sort of, you know, in a fairly straightforward, consistent fashion looking at it, you know. Um, but Europe, I think from a, you know, and that's the reason why we are here is that, you know, Europe is actually converging from that perspective. Um, has, you know, and that's a question why why that was the case. I think basically sort of the regulators somewhat di- works di- work differently here. They have a different, some slightly different mandate than actually other regulators have. But more importantly, I think that this whole, you know, sort of situation with Brexit and sort of, you know, the UK leaving Europe and sort of capital markets now figuring out where to be most innovative and maybe attract uh, better products and better, better, you know, capital, part- capital market participants. I think that's probably a deciding factor too. So we'll, we'll see whether that continues right now. It seems that way that we're continuing on, on that path. And maybe this is going to be sort of similar to how it was in the data space. It might actually be a guidance for the US to come around and actually observe what's happening. Um, Actually, people from from the Treasury Department in the United States have been seen on panels actually saying exactly that. They're like, you know, we're kind of happy that Europe is now sort of taking a plunge into the pool and actually demonstrating whether it actually works or not. And we can adopt once it does. Um, And I think that's 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 how it's going to go. Thinking now about uh, someone who's got an asset like a, a, um, a private equity fund or a piece of real estate that's very liquid and they want to tokenize that asset. Just from an introductory perspective, what should where should they go to be able to do that? They should go to us. <laughs> it's like I mean, it's there's a so on the tokenization side, there's a, you know there's a handful of companies in Europe that are that have been doing it you know kind of on a regular basis and 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 are and it's a pretty straightforward uh, process in most cases. But like there's a few companies out there that do tokenization. I think when we started this, we also kind of looked at like, okay, let's solve the tokenization aspect and then go from there. But then again, even in those conversations with people that wanted to tokenize an asset, there was also like the conversation about like, wait, why would you want to tokenize the asset in the first place? And and if if the if the reason, which it was in most cases, was well to get to make it liquid and to get some liquidity into the asset, well, then so where are you then going to trade it? And then so then the next question was always like, well, after the tokenization. Where do I list it? Like, where, where are the exchanges? Like, what, what happens then? And then that's why we set up a combined entity that could solve both the tokenization aspect as well as the tradability of those tokenized assets. And, um, and, and you know, frankly, we, we don't really care that much about, like, where the asset was tokenized in the first place, as long as it meets certain criteria that makes it possible for us to trade it. And uh, so we were, like, predominantly um, a unique company around the liquidity solutions that we provide. Um, but like, if somebody wants to tokenize through our infrastructure, it's a pretty straightforward process. Uh, we can do it. So you know, we do that on a regular basis. And uh, if I'm an investor and I'm interested, you know, I like the sound of this and I want to see how I can get more involved. What what sort of place is offering investors access to to tokenized assets? So the the way that we've constructed our offering is that we've built uh, something called Market as a Service, which is basically our regulated platform with the liquidity solutions that we're giving to our customers. So each of these customers then actually proposes that to their own customers. Um, so if you're a real estate platform, you have your own set of experience, you want to actually like, you know, build that user experience based on what that product looks like. If you're a music platform, suddenly you're faced with the fact that it might actually be a financial instrument. So you need a, a different user experience. Um, if you if you actually have pre-IPO tech stock, it's again, it's a different experience. So we've we've now constructed a sort of a framework, a platform 
where they can propose that to their audiences and actually do that in a regulated fashion where we still hold regulatory purview of the activity there. But, you know, in our mind, this is just going to like be done by the industries, by the players themselves, rather than some centralized, you know, user experience that has to span all these different verticals and, you know, by inherently therefore would become pretty a noisy experience. Right. No, that's great. Thank you very much indeed, guys. And just to finish off, um, where can, uh, people go to find out more about Swarm and what you're up to? So it's a pretty simple URL, swarm.com. Um, on Twitter, we're at Swarm Markets, uh, in a Twitter handle or X handle, whatever you call it these days. Um, that's pretty much those those channels are the best ones to reach us. Um, and yeah, if, uh, if you want to reach us uh, directly, actually sort of we're reachable through those channels as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time today, guys. That's been really informative. Thank you, Stuart. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.